Good morning, church. Today's reading is from John 7, 1 through 36. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking you to kill? Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. 
I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that, he will that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will not seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? These are the words of our Lord. Good morning. I like that. Yes. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Good to have you with us. And I want to welcome those that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Believe is our current teaching series, The Gospel According to John. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. And we're going to talk about this morning, The Cure for Codependency. I don't have much of an issue with this particular topic. So it's going to be kind of hard for me to explain a lot of this to you because I can't relate really well to this. And so uh, bear with me. I'm kidding, of course. And uh, that was a joke. <laughs> but you didn't laugh much, okay? I think this is an issue that we all deal with. I think if you look, uh, look at this, you're going to find yourself in this, a struggle with this. This is one of our many struggles that we have as people, as human beings. So we're going to talk about the cure of codependency. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 through 36. Quite a lengthy text, a lot there. Also grab your sermon notes out. In the movie, Jerry Maguire, Jerry, played by Tom Cruise, says to Dorothy, played by Renee Zellweger, I love you. You complete me. And then he goes on, he says, and I just had, and, and Dorothy cuts him off in mid-sentence and says, shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. That is so dumb. I mean, isn't it? That's relational idolatry. That's codependency. Can another human being complete you? No. no. Let me say that again. Can another human being complete you? No. no, absolutely not. And yet we hear it from the movies and we hear it from the music and we're surrounded by this concept, this idea that somehow some other person is going to complete me. It's not going to happen. It never will. Sometimes we think it's in a marriage relationship or in a friendship or having kids or 
or whatever it might be, it's just, it's not going to happen. It can be in a job, it can be in an achievement or anything. None of, nothing on this planet, nothing can complete you. Only Christ can complete you. In fact, take a look at your notes there. Codependency is relational idolatry. It is putting more weight on the opinions of people more than God. It is living the myth that I can be happy by trying to control people in the events of my life. It is driven by two subtle lies. The first one is, I need you to be complete. That's the first lie. Second lie is, if you need me, I'll be complete. So this is a playing of, of God in someone else's life or allowing them to play God in your life. So it really comes down to this idea of codependency has to do with uh, responsibility. So there are people who take too much responsibility and they take too much responsibility in other people's lives. Parents often do this with their kids. And, and then it's also uh, allowing someone to take too much responsibility in our life. We take not as much responsibility as we should. So there's that over-responsibility, under-responsibility, that that's, that's that uh, codependency working its way out. Let me ask you this question. What happens when someone who is over-responsible meets someone who is under-responsible? They get married. Yeah. They get married and it's a match made in hell. And that's right. So here's a statement that I've used for years. Maybe you've heard it before. If, if I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own in Christ, all of my relationships will become an effort to complete myself. That's, that's not just in relationships, but that's just in achievements or accomplishments. If I think somehow an accomplishment or achievement or, or whatever it might be is going to complete me, no, we've got to start with our completion in Christ, and then from that, then we move out into the world. And so the cause of this is a compulsion for completion. It's there on your notes. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember when Adam and Eve rebelled against God? That spiritual alienation immediately left them psychologically alienated, empty on the inside, and therefore it, spent, it sent them out socially trying to find that completeness somewhere horizontally where they needed to come back vertically and find it in God. And, and, and you can just see this snowball effect happening in Genesis 3 all the way into Genesis 4. They pass this brokenness onto their kids. Cain kills Abel. I mean, it's just a mess from that point on. That's the issues that we have in our culture today. The cure is totally, total dependency upon Christ. Total dependency upon Christ. You'll notice uh, there, there's a verse, Genesis 2.18, because immediately this, I mean, you have to ask the question here. So, okay, well, let me get this straight, because didn't God say it's not good for man to be alone? So how does that work in this mix? By the way, he said that before the fall. So in man's perfect state, God said it's not good for us to be alone. But he never meant for someone else to replace him in our lives. What he meant by that was that we need people in our lives to help us to find our completion in God. So when you pick friends and you get into a small group, you need people that will support you and point to Christ so that you can more and more find your completion in Him. Anytime you're in relationships where they're taking the place of Christ and you're dependent upon them almost like they are Christ, that's codependency. So, yeah, we need friends, but we need healthy friends who help us to point to Christ as we do that for them. And so that's, that's 
total dependency upon Christ. Now, in this text, you're going, well, where in the world did he get that from the text? Well, it's, it's, it's all over this text, actually, because uh, Jesus' family disbelieved him. The crowds disowned him, and actually, it was the crowds. This was, this was wrong, because when you study down, I noticed that the crowds are the ones that called him a demon. You got a demon, and it was the religious leaders that tried to destroy him, that tried to kill him. And very few remain devoted to him. Yet Jesus faces this opposition with total dependency upon the Father. Pretty amazing. So let me give you a little background here. Verses 1 and 2, if you get your Bibles open, look at verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. You guys know what the Feast of Booths? So if you want to try to understand the Feast of Booths, call it the Feast of Tents. So this was a Jewish holiday celebrating God's provision in the wilderness. So as they went 40 years in the wilderness, they stayed in tents. They're calling them booths here. And so what they would do to commemorate that, to celebrate that, God's, God's provision in the wilderness, they went camping. Yeah, this is Hebrew camping. So think of that with hundreds of thousands of your friends, okay? That's what it is. So how many like camping? How many like camping? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, so here's how I describe camping. Camping is spending lots of money so that you can pretend that you are homeless. Yeah. Now why were God's people so grumpy wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years? Because they were camping. Yes. One of my many reasons I work is so that I don't have to sleep outside and on the ground, okay? But just keep in mind, that's what's going on. They're celebrating with hundreds of thousands of their friends, and they're camping out and just to commemorate God's provision in the wilderness with them. Now, let's take a look at this. This is on your notes. Characteristics, and, and then right after each characteristic, I'll give you a cure for codependency. So here's the first one. Familiarity breeds complacency and contempt. So that's a characteristic of codependency. We talked a little bit about it last week. But uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters, and his brothers are mocking him here. Just kind of curious, how many have ever had family members mock you because you're a Christian or, or maybe even friends? Yeah, it's crazy, and that's what he's experiencing here. Jesus, why are you hiding out? If you want to be famous, you need to go to this uh, f- feast of... Tents, booths, hang out with the people. And he just says that my time has not yet come. And then it says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, how could that happen? How could that happen? Because his mom, Mary, and Joseph obviously knew there was something special about Jesus. In fact, she was visited by an angel, Gabriel, and said, this is the Messiah. So they, they obviously knew that, and yet his brothers despise him. How can that happen? How does that happen in our own lives, in our own relationships, even as it relates to our relationship with Christ? Well, here's how it can happen. One way it can happen is that our love has grown cold. Over time, our love can grow cold. Now, here's, and the reason for that is is we don't really understand what love is. In, In our culture, especially today, we don't understand what love is. Love is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's it's a commitment. 
So when people say, oh, we just fell out of love. No, you didn't because you don't know what love is. That's not love. That's a feeling. You don't fall in and out of love. You commit to love. And you work hard with that commitment. You work hard for that love. It's a commitment. Love is a commitment. So you're not falling in and out of love. What happened is you failed to work in that relationship. In fact, it's an interesting example. Um, in Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, I mean, they were doing all kinds of great works for God, and yet he, he has this against them. He says, you have lost your first love. I mean, they, they looked good on the outside, but they didn't have any deep affection and loyalty to Christ. Their love had grown cold. So you can come to church week in and week out and over time have your love grow cold because you just kind of go through the motions, you check the church box because you're not working at it. You're not practicing spiritual disciplines that would stir up your heart for Christ and experience His love for you. You just kind of, it becomes routine. Familiarity leads to complacency and ultimately to contempt. So you can lose your first love the second reason would be just unrealistic expectations. I don't know what they were expecting from Jesus, but unrealistic expectations. Sometimes we do that with one another. I've seen that happen in marriage relationships. Unrealistic expectations even of a church. How come nobody called me? I was gone for a couple of weeks and nobody in that church called me. And there's, there's these unrealistic expectations oftentimes placed upon our relationships. And what we do is we crush them under our unrealistic expectations because we're trying to get from them what we should be getting from Christ. We do that in marriage relationships. We do that with our kids. So that familiarity breeds complacency and contempt over time. And, and we can even, like I said, we can do it even in, in church setting, a church setting like this. We can expect the gospel messenger, that's me, to wow us more than the gospel message. In fact, I know that churches have been over backwards nowadays to, to set an environment and lights and, and cameras and, and all the things that are going on. I mean, obviously, we don't do much of that. We just try to set a nice, comfortable environment. But what happens is that you can be so dependent upon the environment. In fact, oftentimes I've asked people to say, why do you go to that church? Oh, my goodness, it's like a North Scottsdale resort. It's so beautiful there. No, well, that's, you go there because of that? Or, or, wow, I mean, you should hear the music. Oh, it's out of this world. How about this? How, how about the function of the church? Is it a place where you worship and connect with God? Regardless of lights or regardless of the atmosphere, that you can connect with God? Worship, instruction, you, you're instructed God's Word, it transforms your life, fellowship, oh my goodness, you're able to connect with others, and how about, it's a place where you can invite your family and friends to hear the gospel so that their lives can be transformed. But see, we become so dependent upon oftentimes the setting or the vehicle by which God uses, that's, code, that's codependency. We can look at the, the, the form, the church form, rather than its function. So let me ask you, what is more sacred here? What's more sacred? Stained glass, robes, organ, or coffee bar, casual dress, guitar? 
Yeah, coffee bar, casual dress, and guitar. That's more sacred. That's more anointed. You guys know that. I'm kidding. Some of you aren't smiling. That was a joke. But there are people that will come in here, and I remember one time we got a card because our guitar player didn't have any shoes on the stage. How sacrilegious is that? And then also had people, it's, it's, it's been a while since I've got my shorts on, so maybe eventually I'll get my shorts on. And I've had people come in here and go, oh my, don't applaud me, please. <laughs> Woo! Pastor Ray's got shorts on. That's weird, okay? That's really weird. That's codependency right there. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm kidding. But I've had people come in and go, I can't believe the guy wears shorts. How sacrilegious is that? What he should be more concerned about, do we preach the Bible here? Do we help people to connect with Christ? So here's the issue, is that we make the form more sacred than the function of the church. That's codependency. We get all hung up on all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, and so, I mean, certainly, they grew up with Jesus. And they no doubt had some sibling rival, rivalry. So when mom came in to break up a fight, I mean, she may have said one too many times, well, I, I know it's not Jesus' fault. And, uh, <laughs> and maybe it just rubbed them wrong. I don't know the dynamics that were going on there, but I can't help but think that, like, wow, he's this goody two-shoes, Jesus. It's like, we despise him. And, and they certainly despise him here. Here's the cure. Don't let family ties bind. Don't let family ties bind. Look at verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. Do you see the boundaries here with this guy? So what we have to do, even as parents, uh, with our kids that are grown and gone, our tendency is to try to control them and, you know, and... and in some way, so much of our identity is based on their, how they're doing in life and all those things. We, gotta, we can't let family ties bind. Even with our kids in our home, uh, we can let that control us, the performance of our kids be so attached to our identity. You can't let that happen. Your identity is always in Christ, and then out of that completeness in Him, then you're able to be a better parent, a better spouse, a better friend, a better neighbor. You can't let family ties bind. That's what Jesus is showing us here. He's saying, hey, my time's not come. You guys can go on up there. I would have said, don't tell me what to do. Get off my back. He doesn't do that. He's really cool, calm, and collected. He's just like, no, I'm not going. Boundary, boom. And that's, that's really important. Now, what's interesting about this is that God's will is only half of it. Knowing God's timing is the other half. So it's important to know God's will. Knowledge is knowing God's will. We all want to know God's will. The problem is, is we also know, need to have wisdom to apply God's will. So wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. So if you might have God's will, but ask Him for His wisdom so that the timing is appropriate for the application of His will. That's what Jesus is, is demonstrating here for us. And... Um, 
in verses 9 through 10, it says Jesus remains in Galilee and then goes up privately to Judea. Now, how do you keep uh, from letting family ties bind? How do you keep from parents, you know, bossing you around now that you're grown and gone or, or any number of things? You've got family members that are dogging you all the time or whatever it might be. How do you do that? How do you have those healthy boundaries? Because, I mean, family and close friends, can, they carry a lot of weight in, in what they say about us. They can have great, a great effect on us. Would you agree with that? Show of hands? Yep. Okay. Just four of us? Okay. Uh, I think all of us. I think all of us. But here, listen to what David says in Psalm 27.10. For my father and mother have forsaken me. And I know people in this church, their family has forsaken them. Some of you were abandoned by your dad growing up. Some were abandoned by their mom. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will take me in. That's where you get it. That's where you get your identity. Now, let me give you some hope here. Hope for those who have unbelieving family members. After the resurrection, Jesus' own brothers, so think about this. Before the resurrection, I mean, they're scoffing at him. And they're mocking him. After the resurrection, Jesus' own brothers worship him as God. In fact, two of his brothers write Scripture. Anybody know the two New Testament books written by the brothers of Jesus? James and Jude. James and Jude. And, and this, is strong, this is a strong case that the Bible is true. Now, I have two sisters, and the odds of them worshiping me as God are not good, okay? I just know that they're not going to do it. I, I wanted them to. I wish they would. Even to this day, I wish they would bow down when I walk in the room. They don't typically do that. But for Jesus' own brothers who went from mocking him to bowing down to him as God and then giving their own lives for him, the resurrected Savior, that's really important. And let me just say, don't give up on your lost loved ones because he can transform their lives just as Jesus' brothers' lives were transformed by the gospel. Here's the next one. So here's the characteristic of codependency. You can't handle the truth. Oh man, you're gonna do movies here today, Pastor Ray? Okay, no, not necessarily. This is just the second one. And so what movie is that from? A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise once again. Now look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you. He's talking to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it, that its works are evil. Notice the word testify. He's just bearing the truth. It's not like he's shoving it in their face. He's not coming to condemn them. I just testify of the truth. They hate me. I just told them what was true. And they hate me. They don't hate you. If you stand with Jesus, expect to suffer with Jesus. It's evident that Jesus' brothers are on the wrong side of the fight. Now, why would Jesus testify about the world's evil works? Why would he do that? Because he's a manifestation of truth, and he loves us. He loves us. In fact, it tells us in John 3.17, you guys know John 3.16? Well, John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world 
to condemn the world, but that through the world, that through him the world might be saved, but through him the world might be saved. So he didn't come in to condemn us. So he brings us truth, but it's not to condemn us, but to convict us. And his conviction is, is meant to woo us and to draw us closer to him, to expose us with, with the truth that would draw our hearts closer to him so that he can satisfy us and set us free. Anytime you feel conviction in a service, you got to know the difference between condemnation. Listen, the enemy condemns, and he wants to take you out by condemnation. But God convicts. Oh, he's drawing us. Yeah, yep, you got sin in your life, but I've got an answer to that. I can help you with that. I love you. And that's what the, that's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's what Jesus came to do. Now, let's talk about this, this idea of speaking the truth. Any love that is afraid to speak the truth is really not love. It is a kind of emotional hunger to be loved. It's, it's codependency. So if you've got people that you know, I need to speak up, I need to say something, I should say something, but I, don't know, I feel too uncomfortable. I feel like I'm walking around on eggshells when I'm around them. Someone should say something. How about you say something? No, I'm not going to say anything. Well, you need to say something. No, I'm not going to say something. No, somebody needs to say something. You need to speak the truth. But you've got to do it in love. So if you find yourself in that condition, here's what's happening. You are using and exploiting the person to feed your own emptiness because you're fearful that somehow you're going to lose a relationship or they might be mean to me or any number of things. No, you don't really care about the relationship, nor do you care about that person because you have this compulsion for completion. Therefore, I'm not going to say anything. Let's just all be nice. Let's all be friends. That's called codependency. Fear of man, relational idolatry, codependency, can't speak or receive the truth because of an emotional emptiness, this compulsion for completion. Here's the cure. We've got to learn how to speak and receive the truth in love. That's your next fill in the blank. So let's think about conflict here just for a minute. How many absolutely love conflict? Just show of hands. Not too many people. Yeah, there's a few that, because, probably because you're, you're mature, you know how to respond, you know how to kind of navigate it. Conflict is not a bad thing. In fact, you need a little bit of conflict in your life from time to time, in your marriage relationship with your kids and all these things, because it kind of stirs you up a little bit, and it makes you start thinking a little deeper about your life. See, conflict gives you opportunity for greater levels of intimacy and maturity, not only with the other people, but also with God. It's in conflict that drives me deeper into my relationship with God and grows me up. And the same thing horizontally in my, my relationships. And so... Oftentimes, when we, the way we deal with conflict, all of us, there's fighters and flighters. How many fighters do we have in the house? You like to fight, man. You, you step into me, I'm going to step more into you. Come on. Is that the best you got? Oh. So there's a few fighters. Did you see the people that raised their hand? Stay away from them. How many flighters? Flight. You just take off. I'm out of here. Woohoo. I didn't see if there was any couples that both of them were fighters, but was there any couples here? There's a lot of craziness in that family. And so, so we tend to do one or the other. Both of them are wrong. Okay? Just, just telling you, fight or flight. That's actually showing you you really don't love the relationship. What you have to do is you've got face, to face the issues, face the problem. Don't run from it. 
Don't run into it with an attitude like you're going to grind an axe. No, you face it. And you learn to speak and receive the truth in love. And when you do that, Ephesians 4, 15 and 25 says that we're going to grow in Christ-likeness and intimacy and maturity. Proverbs 15, 1, how are we supposed to do it? Proverbs 15, 1, gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 16, 21, it says sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. I mean, if it's getting a little bit heated, lower your voice a little bit. Just speak more calmly. Relax. By the way, when you lose your calmness, you lose clarity, and then you start saying really dumb stuff, okay? So stay calm. Stay calm. So you can be clear and then be curious. Ask questions. Hey, so how long have you hated me? <laughs> how long have you wanted to kill me? Okay, maybe that's not the situation, but I mean, try to understand where they're coming from and kind of work through that and show a lot of compassion. And that becomes the setting. Second Thessalonians 2.10, if you refuse to love the truth, you won't be saved or even transformed. See, we have to be lovers of the truth even when it's really hard. So, so if, you have, if you're all truth and no love, that's pride. That's an attitude of superiority. The way you overcome that, so that would be more of the fighter. That would be more of the fighter. So how do you overcome that? You realize that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I was so simple, Jesus had to die for me. That should humble you. Because all truth and no grace is thinking that, yeah, I've got it. I'm the only one that gets it here. I'm right. What about if you're all love and no truth? That's kind of more of the person that's flying, their f flight. And that's based on fear. That's an inferiority complex. How do you get the courage to, to talk to people? Well, you need to have the confidence that really can only come from Christ. You need to realize that he loved you so much he wanted to die for you. He gave his life for you. That gives you that confidence. And so the more you find yourself in this intimate relationship with God, remember we talked about it last week, last two weeks, intimacy with God is a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. Mutual giving and receiving. And the more you do that, oh my goodness, think about this. This is what I want every day. He lavishes me with his love. He liberates me with his truth that he speaks to me through his word and as I interact with him in my relationship with him. Oh my goodness, that's a f fabulous foundation for, for speaking and receiving truth and love from others horizontally. See, if, if I'm messed up here, if I'm messed up horizontally, it's because I'm messed up vertically. I need to go back vertically. If I'm not responding to conflict horizontally well, it's because I need to get back with God and spend some time with Him so that I can have a sense of completion in Him, and then I'm going to respond appropriately horizontally. Here's the next one, number three. Oh, by the way, let me just say, uh, before we go to number three, I actually believe that you can, if you spend time with the Lord in this mutual giving and receiving of love, you can actually get to a place to where you are unoffendable. That no one can offend you. I mean, how could they? The God of the galaxies loves you lavishes you with his love and has liberated you. You've never been more free than knowing him. So that way you can, you're able to respond appropriately. You can be unoffendable. So, okay, fear of man is a snare. Number three, fear of man is a snare. 
Look at verses 11 through 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Now check this out, verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Fear of man, fear of man. That's codependency. In fact, it tells us in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So here's the cure. It's to trust in the Lord or to live for God's glory or to fear God, the fear of God. That's, that's all, in the, all, all in the same. So live for God's glory. That's your next fill in the blank. That's your cure. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is what he teaches, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So what is, what is he saying? He's living for God's glory. I mean, he's really doesn't have any fear of man because he's... He's not speaking from his own authority, he's speaking from God's authority for God's glory. Now, it's interesting as you study out this chapter, the Pharisees, verse 32, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus, and then in our text next week, verses 45 and 46, the Pharisees want to know why the officers come back empty-handed, and they say, the officers say to the Pharisees, oh my goodness, no one ever spoke like this man. So what is he talking about? He's making a contrast between those who speak from their own authority versus those who speak from God's authority. I think it's an important distinction. I mean, you need to know that on a weekend service or if you go to other churches. You know, how do you know the difference between the two? Well, to speak from your own authority is speaking about God for your glory. To speak from God's authority is speaking from God for His glory. See, the difference is between knowing about God and knowing God. It is having insight that only comes with time alone with God. That's why they were in awe. They go, oh my goodness, where does this guy get this knowledge? What is going on here? He's speaking the very words of God. It's stirring our hearts. It's motivating us. It's, wow, the soldiers came back and said that. No one has ever spoken like this guy. So what does that mean to live for God's glory? What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to really trust God? I think it's, um, I think it's a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who God is, who Christ is, and what He's done for us, it absolutely ruins you for anything else. I was ruined years ago. When I began to get glimpses of the glory of God, by the way, the word glory means weight, significance, importance, it created within me this, wow, wow, you gotta be kidding me. The God of the galaxies came to this earth and died in my place for my sins. Wow, glory of God. Glory of God. Wow, wow, and mmm, nothing more satisfying. Wow, his greatness. Mmm, his goodness. 
It's just, it, it, nothing like it. And when you begin to see his glory, as I said last week, the last of the message was, is seeing, when you feast upon the bread of life, you see, you see his glory, you savor his glory. Oh my goodness, and then you're able to show his glory to the world by your satisfaction in him. The glory of God. My wife and I uh, had a chance to, to go to Sedona with, with some friends the last couple days. And when we would come out of the condo, my, both my wife and I and even our friends were like, wow, ah, oh. the red rocks, the mountainous, beautiful red rocks that surround the city of Sedona. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, it had been a long time since I've been to Sedona, but it was breathtaking. It was just like, ooh, God lives here. Not like some people think, okay? You know, that vortex thing and all that. That's insane, okay? Just, just saying, that's craziness. But God lives everywhere. We know that. But, I mean, he, that's his handiwork. I mean, you see his handiwork up close and personal. You're just like, wow. And every time we'd get out of the condo and look, and it's just surrounded by these tall, high, red rocks all around us. Ooh, my wife and I went out hiking one of the days, and we're just like in awe and wonder. Now, what's interesting, in, um, in Job 26, that chapter, he talks about creation revealing the glory of God. And then at the very end of that chapter, this is what he says, that all of creation is, is just the outskirts of his glory. It's just a whisper. It's a whisper of his glory. And no one can fully fathom the greatness and the glory of God. So when you see beautiful landscapes like Sedona, you hang out there for a few days, and you go, wow, that's just a glimpse of his glory. I mean, if, if you, once your heart is wrecked by the glory of God, nothing more satisfying, I'm telling you. And then, then what, what happens over time is that you begin to, as it says in 1031, 1 Corinthians 1031, 1031, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, even delicious food. I mean, you, just, you enjoy it, you adore it, but you don't stop there. You let it roll on up to the one who even taste and see that the Lord is good. He's even better. So when you see a glorious setting or a beautiful setting, just remember, just remember, he's more glorious. He's more beautiful beyond your wildest dreams, beyond anything you've ever experienced. And you, through Jesus Christ, have the privilege to know him, to experience him, to see, savor, and show him to the world. And what happens when you're living for God's glory, I think that you're like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. Listen to what Jeremiah says. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. I mean, that's how I felt for years. <laughs> the older I get, the more it burns. Oh my goodness, I want people to see his glory. Week in and week out, when you come in here, I want you to see his glory. I want you to know him. There's nothing like it. Living for his glory. Okay, number four. 
I got to get rolling here, okay? Intellectual snobbery is a false sense of security. There's also a term called chronological snobbery. It was a phrase coined by C.S. Lewis. It's kind of looking back on all the dead theologians saying, oh, these guys are dumb. We're smarter. We've got, you know, technologically, we're more advanced and all that. It's called chronological snobbery. Sometimes that happens with, I mean, it, you can see it in our culture today. With younger people, they think a lot of us old people are dumb and stupid and, and dress funky and all kinds of things like that. It just, it's, it's a chronological snobbery because somehow they're more hip and they're more cool and whatever. It's, just, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's codependency and it's idolatry is what it is. But intellectual snobbery, you see it right here, verses 15 through 17. And it's a false sense of security. I say that because most people think, ah, because I'm so smart, you know, I'm on the ball. I know what I'm talking about. And so verses 15 through 17, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, note Jesus' humility here. He, he doesn't come after them. He doesn't try to prove his point. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If you really had a desire to know God, if you're really seeking God with all your heart, you're going to find out. You're going to say, I'm speaking from God. Now, the Christian community at large today has too many people, this is, this is from my perspective, has too many people from different camps who speak with pride believing they are the only ones who get it. You hear what I said? I mean, just go on uh, YouTube. Look at all the, uh, look at all the, uh, what are they called? Not, not blogs, but uh, podcasts. Thank you. Yeah, look at all the podcasts. A lot of podcasts out there just bashing other people, other churches, other religious leaders, how bad they are. That's called religious idolatry. So let me explain to you what religious idolatry is. This is another form of codependency. Religious idolatry happens when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than God himself and his grace. Now I understand you need to have, certainly we need to have right doctrine, but when you rely on your right doctrine to save you rather than God and His grace, that's religious idolatry. And a sign you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become a scoffer who shows disdain for opponents rather than grace. You begin to build your list of, of false teachers. Oh, they're a false teacher. Oh, they don't really preach the gospel. Oh, that church down there, oh, they don't know what they're doing. You start bashing other churches in the community and think somehow you've arrived, that's religious idolatry. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I've been called a false teacher from groups in our community, and you're listening to me. I mean, you have to be the judge of that. But there are people out there that would say, I mean, have said all kinds of crazy things, and that's, it's religious idolatry. When they start scoffing at everybody, they build their list. See, what's happened in these, these groups is that they have forgotten, and we can fall prey to this, and I'm saying it so that we, we don't want to go there, but uh, they have forgotten that they are sinners saved by grace, and, and 
and they trust in the rightness of their views. Trusting in the rightness of their views makes them feel superior. Like, I'm better than you. You just don't know the Scripture like I know it. Rather than helping you to know the Scripture, they just kind of throw that down on you. Here's the cure to that. Here it is. Theology plus doxology equals love, God, love, others. You guys know what doxology is? So theology plus doxology. Your theology should lead to worship. Wow! That's what it should lead to. And when you do the wow, you're going to love people and love God more. You're going to live for His glory and seek the good of the people in your life. Look at verses 19 and 20 of our text. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Does, does killing someone seem to contradict the law? What do you think? Yes, a little bit. They're trying to murder him. And you guys boast that you have the law. Look at this deep theology that we have. And yet you're trying to kill me? I think in there in the law says you shouldn't murder. I mean, that's the point that Jesus is uh, making here. And the crowd answered, they just counterattack. He's just trying to help them to see the truth. They counterattack. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? You're delusional. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So what you have to do is you have to distinguish between teaching. There's teaching. There's certainly teaching on the airwaves. YouTube, on the internet, in this community that will feed your ego, it puffs you up. Yeah, we're the best church on the corner. We're better than all those other people out there. That's teaching that puffs you up. Oh, we have right doctrine here. So there's teaching that puffs you up, and then there's teaching that builds you up. Oh my goodness, it increases your capacity for God. Oh man, I love him. I want to know him. I want other people to know him. You got to make the distinction. What are you feeding yourself? We talked about what we're feeding ourselves last week. And so 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 says, Sound doctrine is to produce faith and love that comes from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Now listen to me. I won't give you two cents for your theology if it doesn't increase your capacity to love God and love others. You can spout all day, tell me all kinds of stats about the Bible. You can even boast that you have it all together and you're the only right one. But if you don't love people more, you're missing it. That's not scripture. Theology should lead to doxology that leads to greater capacities of love for God and others. Not puffing you up, building you up. Okay, number five. It is all about looking good versus being good. And you can see that in verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body? Well, remember when he... Uh, uh, he healed the invalid back in chapter 5 at the pool of Beth Bethesda. And that's what he's talking about here. And then no, here's the key right here, verse 24. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. 
So Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy and double standard. But, but he's pointing out something here too, is that you can, you can even do good without being good. It's all show. It's all form, no function. It's just going through the motions. Matthew 18, 8 through 9, Jesus said, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They come to church, they read their Bible, they put money in the box, they go to small groups, but they don't have a passion for me. They don't have any love for me. Matthew 23, 27 through 28, he says, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. You guys know what a hypocrite is, don't you? It's a mask wear. They're conveying something externally that's different what's on the inside. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but, with, but within are full of dead men's bones. Outwardly you appear righteous, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now here's another form of religious idolatry. It's elevating spiritual gifts, talents, ability, performance, growth, above fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You know the fruit. It's charisma over character. So here's what you always keep in mind. Fear and pride can restrain the heart. And it can look pretty good on the outside. But only love can transform the heart from the inside out. That's the kind of change you want. Not outside in. Fear and pride motivated. That's extrinsic motivation. But man, when your heart is captivated by the love of Christ, that's what transforms you from the inside out. Here's the cure Give Christ your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. Hosea 6.6, 6, this is the heart of the Father. For I desire steadfast love and not, not just going through the motions and checking the box, not sacrifice, the knowledge of, I want you to know me intimately rather than burn offerings. I don't care how much money you give or how much good you do. I want you to know me intimately and know my love for you. So, characteristics of of codependency. Familiarity breeds complacency. You can't handle the truth. Fear of man is a snare. Intellectual snobbery is a false sense of security. It's all about looking good versus being good. The cure, don't let family ties bind. Speak and receive the truth in love. Live for God's glory. Theology plus doxology equals love for God and others. And the cure here is give your heart to Christ. Okay, let me give you the last fill in the blanks. This is going to go quick. We must help people to deconstruct defeater beliefs. These people, this mob, have, they have a lot of defeater beliefs, beliefs that make Christianity implausible. If belief A is true, then belief B can't be true. For instance, this intellectual snobbery. He didn't come from our higher learning institutions, therefore he can't be the Messiah, or at least anybody great. That's a defeater belief. So we need to help people with those. By the way, if you want more information about that, just Google search that and it'll talk about defeater beliefs. Oftentimes people don't come to Christ because they have these defeater beliefs. They're unrealistic expectations. They're not expectations consistent with reality of God's word. And so de deconstruct defeater beliefs so that they can give their life to Christ. So we see yet many of the people believed in him. Even in the midst of all this chaos, many believed in him. And the last one is before it's too late, so that they can give their life to Christ before it's too late. Verses 33 through 34, Jesus said, then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, later on in verse 14, he tells his disciples, you know where I'm going, and I'm coming back to get you, and you're going to be with me. So why the distinction here between the two? 
because he's telling these guys before time runs out, before it's too late, and he would be speaking those words to us, because the older you get, the harder your heart becomes. If you keep resisting God over time, what happens? Your heart becomes harder and harder over time. And no one knows when they are going to die or when Christ will return. Life is short, death is sure. And once you have died, eternal, your eternal destination is sealed forever. Hey, bow your heads with me just for a moment here. Just think about what God is speaking to you this morning. I gave you a lot, but you're going to need to take these notes home, go through the growing notes, and begin to work through this lest you become codependent. We're, we're all codependent. We all struggle with the fear of man, relational idolatry. Just what is God speaking to you this morning? Maybe you're here and you've never made a commitment of your life to Jesus. This would be a great morning to do that. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from him. Believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and, and give him your life. Give him your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. So, Father God, we confess that we make an idol out of people's approval. Make us so satisfied with your love by grace through faith in your Son that we no longer respond to people out of fear of displeasing them, but only, only in love, seeking your glory in what is in their best interest. Remove our relational idolatries of codependency and fear of man, which can give us which can never give us the acceptance, security, and significance we need that can only be found in you. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Hold on just a second. Let me just, um, my wife and I will be up here at the front at the end right now, and along with any available elders. If you are new, we would love to meet you. And if you need prayer for any particular reason, we'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions about this message, we'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Love you guys. God bless you.